like to welcome people to the premise. Today, Chad and I are speaking with comic, author, screenplay, and teleplay writer, educator, and all-around creative genius, John Vorhaus. Mm. John is best known for his comedy writing classic, The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny, Even if you're not. He has taught and trained writers in 37 countries on five continents at last count. There might be a couple more continents we're going to put in there. Just kidding. (laughs) And created shows of his own in Nicaragua, Romania, and elsewhere. His writing credits include dozens of teleplays and screenplays, plus seven novels and some two dozen works of nonfiction. His latest book, A White Belt in Art, explores his late-blooming interest in visual creativity. Vorhaus is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University and a member of the Writers Guild of America. Hello, John Vorhaus. Welcome Hello. to the premise. Hi. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, there. Well, here. Here where I am. Here and there. Yeah, you're here and there. And there at the cool. same time. Mm-hmm. And listeners have no I'm, idea. You could be here as opposed to there. I'm, I'm violating the laws of physics even as we speak. <laughs> I've always wanted to be able to teleport myself, but now I just teleport my voice. I guess that's been happening. My whole We're life. getting closer and true. closer to that. Right? Mm. Mm. I really just want the, the thing in the wall that you ask for food and it delivers. Like right? in the Jetsons or in Star Trek. I would like a juicy steak cooked to my oh. perfection. Or the slightly less than perfect cup of tea that Dent, Arthur Dent, keeps trying to get in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. And every time he does it, he crashes the the spaceship's computer. (laughs) Ah. Well, hopefully we don't um, crash this this spaceship's computer, although anything's possible these days. Listen, I have a, a question for you. Have you always been funny? Or did you have to teach yourself to be funny? That's a really good question. I, I, I'm the youngest of three children. And uh, as the youngest, I think that I was, I, I had the, the expectation was that I was going to say cute, funny things because I was the youngest. And I probably got a lot of positive reinforcement from that. Um, my family has an expression, <laughs> don't laugh at him, it just eggs him on. <laughs> but but meanwhile, they egged me on relentlessly and and got me hooked on the endorphin uh, 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 what's bath that comes with getting approval from other people. So mm-hmm. I think that I was um, I was positively reinforced in being funny from an early age. Also, I was short and used humor as a defense mechanism against bullies. I can remember that for sure. Also, mm. incredibly smart, if I may say so. Actually, this is kind of a late blooming thought <laughs> that I've had. I, I found myself reflecting on the question, why do I have the relationships that I have with people and with groups of people? And it occurred to me that having grown up short and smart, I had a kind of an I-thou relationship with the rest of the world. It was me and my smart friends, and we were a closed group, and then there was everybody else. And they were very alien to me and very off-putting to me, and they beat me up in gym class. So I have, this is a late reflection, but, but kind of an interesting revelation. In the history of my life, I'm really only comfortable in groups that I am leading, and not mm. nearly so comfortable in groups where I'm not in charge. And maybe that's because I have a low tolerance for boredom and I'm easily bored by everything except the sound of my own voice. But 
Uh, there's, there's something to that. I think that the, the fabric of my life has been determined by the fact that I grew up short and smart. You well, know what? acknowledging that is the first step to recovery. That's right. It is. You know, it is. John, I have to tell you, I have, a, I've had a similar revelation. I grew up in a very, very, very small town. In fact, you might not even call it a town. You might call it like a hovel, a connection mm-hmm. of hovels. In, in Cusick, Washington, up near um, the, the uh, Ponderay River and an Indian reservation across the way. And there were like 12 kids in my class. And I was made fun of a lot. It was very unpopular. And I've always been really comfortable if I'm in charge. And I've always risen to like the manager, Sam Goody. And, you know, I've, I always become the boss very quickly because I like to be in charge. I guess I want to control the situation. And if I go into a group, let's say I'm invited to a party where I don't know anyone, I'm super awkward. Kind of like I say stupid things. I'm awkward. I feel uncomfortable. Like I've determined that I'm, I'm an introvert pretending to be an extrovert. That's a thing. I understand that, that that's a real condition. People who are socially adept are not necessarily extroverts. Mm-hmm. They, they might be, as you self-describe, an introvert with social skills. Right. Um, yeah. But um, sp- speaking of, of small towns, you re- remind me of a, a line that I came up with a few years ago. It's not a small town when you know all the interesting people in it. It's a small town when you are all the interesting people in it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to yeah. write that down. That's a good, good quote. Well, yeah, there's something to that. Like if, you know, I've always put myself in a position where I feel comfortable. And I think that's really what it is. Because I always felt like an outsider. Hmm. I, I, I wonder if everybody secretly feels like an outsider. I think I so. I mean, yeah. if you could really get inside everybody's skin, they would say, mm-hmm. there's me and there's everybody else. And I'm not like anybody else. Right. I have a friend. I have a friend who is dyslexic. And recently confessed to feeling guilt and shame around dyslexia. That when he was a teenager, a kid, he he knew he had this problem. And it was so shameful to him that he wouldn't tell anybody about it. And so exacerbated his own problem for quite a number of years. But then discovered that that was kind of a common theme among dyslexics. That, mm. that that they get this sense that there's something wrong with them and not good. And mm-hmm. it it heightens their feeling of alienation. This is going to come right back around to humor in a second. But let's just pause for a minute and contemplate <laughs> that everybody secretly feels alienated. Mm-hmm. Because then we can uh, uh, touch upon the, the thesis, my thesis of comedy, that comedy is truth and pain. And if you can identify the commonly held truth and the commonly held pain of your audience's experience, you can easily make them laugh just by focusing on that thing. So what, right. what, we're, what we're determining here is, hey, I feel alienated. And what if everybody feels as alienated as I feel? Well, then I can probably build a comic bridge to them just by highlighting this sense of I'm all alone in the world and sharing it with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be hilarious. One of these, minutes, <laughs> one of these, one of these minutes soon. 
any second now. Well, no, that's true. Like if, if I'm watching a comedian and, and, and he talks about something that I can relate to, mm-hmm. you know, that that bridge is definitely that thing that gets me to, to open up and go, oh my gosh, that's so true. I That's so true. That. That's the phrase. Yeah. That's so yeah. true. Right. I, you know, and that's the thing about comedy, right? It's all based on real experiences and storytelling in particular. You know, if we can get people to feel less alone, um, it, you know, we talk about this all the time at the San Diego Writers Festival. The whole point of the Writers Festival is to create storytelling as, as a form of healing, um, building empathy, you know, um, learning more about ourselves and others i mean there's just so much that happens through storytelling and the comedic part of it is super interesting to me well the the writer's experience is a solo experience and Mm -hmm. a lot of people gravitate to writing because it's solo going back to Mm -hmm. our theme of alienation separation some people are just drawn to it because i don't have to mess with anybody else in the world i can just stay here in the world of my imagining the trouble is that you wake up one day and you say i'm all alone because you're so cut Mm -hmm. off from the experience of other writers that you just don't know what it means to be a writer in a community of writers and then you reach out and waste the rest of the day on facebook you feel less alone but you got no (laughs) writing done but, well, maybe. There's something to having a community in writing because, you know, what do we do as writers? We, like, like you said, we lock ourselves in a room, we sit in front of a computer and we tap out whatever we can and hope it's good. But once we join that writing community, we get feedback, affirmation. I mean, I, I know you talk a lot about staying inspired. In fact, um, I'm going to jump to a question that my co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival, Marnie Friedman, has for you. She asks, so many people are struggling now to get to the page. How are you helping artists and writers with process and how can they get themselves to start moving? Uh, What exactly is the question to get, how to get writers to the page? Yeah, like so many people right now, and particularly during COVID, where there's a lot of alienation and we're, we're stuck at home and maybe we don't have those communities. Like, how, how are you personally helping artists and writers with process? Uh, that's a good question. I think I have an answer for it. Uh, let me preface it or frame it by saying that uh, my experience of creativity during uh, uh, COVID, in here in COVID world, uh, is mirrored by everybody else's experience. Uh, we, when the crisis hit, there was a tremendous surge to participate in it creative, creatively. For myself, mm-hmm. I, I recognized two threads. One was, uh, as, as I put it in, my, in the journal that I started, if this is the end of the world, the least I can do is take notes. So I, <laughs> I, I felt a strong need to participate in this, what was clearly uh, a world historical event. The other thread is a matter or an issue of control. The circumstances outside our doors are so far beyond our control now in ways that are more profound and more disturbing than ever before. And it's caused a knee-jerk reaction in people. They want to control what they can control. And so it's really drawn them to the creative experience. But here's the rub, and here it comes. No sooner have we said to ourselves, I am driven to create, or I'm inspired, or, or I have this urgent need to create, then we marry it to an expectation. And the expectation is that this is going to be great and worthwhile. It's going to be uh, a worthy commentary on the world in which I find myself. I'm going to come out of this 
isolation, this, this lockdown, this pandemic with worthiness. And Something to show for it, so to speak, yeah. And, 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 right, and, and, and the, the expectation of having something to show for it quickly turns into the need to have something to show for it, and the need quickly turns on its head and becomes a fear of not having something to show for it. That's where process breaks down. People mm. say, I want to create, I need to create, but I expect it to be great and worthy, and the, the burden of my expectations is so heavy that I find myself paralyzed. And then you're, nothing. you know, yeah. eating bonbons on the couch and watching every episode of Sons of Anarchy. Breaking Bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's a bad um, thing? So, <laughs> Wait, I was doing that <laughs> last night. Hold on a minute. <laughs> so so, the, so the, the, the answer to the question, how can I improve my process, is two words, lower expectation. Put your expectation mm. all the way down on the floor and say, the, the expectation that I have for this work is nothing other than it is the work that I'm doing now. Mm. And that lowering that expectation brings you into your practice in a healthy way because it puts you in a situation where you say the outcome doesn't matter only the execution matters only the process matters that's what i'm interested mm -hmm. in that's what's important to me that's what i'm going to focus on it's kind of a trick of the mind in the sense that you're lying to yourself which we do every day of course but if you get practiced at lying to yourself in this way, then you find that you can gateway into your writing or your creativity much more effectively. I call this kind of self-lying. I actually have a name for it. Uh, it's called a useful fiction. And a useful fiction is a lie that you know to be a lie, but you pretend it's not a lie because there's benefits in doing so. I'll give you an example. I'm sure you can relate to it. The day you set out to write a novel... You, you're crushed with fear, the fear of all the work that lies ahead, all the chances for failure, all the billions of people who are never going to read what you write, all of that stuff. The, 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 the semiotic message that we give to ourselves is, I cannot do this thing, it's too big. But we know from experience that the only way the process gets accomplished, the only way the novel gets written, is by actually sitting down and writing it. So if you say to yourself, I suspend my disbelief, I buy into the useful fiction that this is going to be a piece of cake, that I'm going to get through it and it's going to be worth doing, then you can actually enter into the process. But you kind of have to lie, lie to yourself in order to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, say, say I, the master of self-deception. Uh, right. It's <laughs> so true. I, I actually do that. I do that. So when I am currently working on my, my memoir and Marnie Friedman, again, my co-founder at the San Diego Writers Festival, sort of tricked me into writing my memoir. And I thought to myself, those exact same things, this is too scary. I don't want to put my story out into the world. My family will hate me. You know, all those things that memoirists mm -hmm. think. And then I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to publish this. This is just for me. I'm just going to write this. So I get it written down and there's, I put zero expectations on myself. And suddenly it was fun. I had fun writing it because it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to happen with it anyway. And that's a textbook example of useful fiction, because then you turn around at the end of the experience and you say, hey, this isn't so bad. I can at least try to get it published. <laughs> totally. Uh, exactly. There's, there, there's, there's a little exercise I do in, in my writing classes where I'm trying to get people to feel free to express their deeply held truth and pain. I say to the class, uh, write down on a piece of paper one thing about yourself that you don't want anybody else in the world to know. Don't worry, I won't ask you to share. And then the suckers all write them down and then I make them share. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you How can you not share. see that you telegraphed it? I mean, how do they not know that that's going to happen? You, you know, but the thing is, and this is where it gets kind of meta, they know I'm lying. I've told them right. that I'm, I'm going to lie to them over and over again for their own good. And but they buy into it because they see the benefit. They see they I have you. given them a permission to tell themselves a truth that's that is a value to them. There's value in saying, I'm afraid people are going to find out I'm a fraud or people are going to discover I'm dyslexic. And mm. uh, there's there's value, there's creative value, there's psychic value, there's soul value in that. But you need to find a way into it. Mm. I. I taught, no, I taught, I ran a, a writing staff in Nicaragua and all of the writers on the staff were brand new writers. They, they had high social uh, intelligence quotient, high SQ social quotient, whatever that is that I just made up, but they were not experienced <laughs> writers and they had a lot of fear associated with being inexperienced writers. And one after another, they'd kind of come to me on the side and they'd say, do you have faith in me? Do you think I have what it takes? And my answer was so formulaic, it almost became rote. I said, I'm going to tell you something, but before I tell you, I'm going to tell you that the thing I tell you is a lie. And the thing that I'm telling you is, yes, I have faith in you. Why am I telling you that and telling you it's a lie? Because I need you to perform for me. I need you to be a writer of a certain type. And I recognize that a block to that is your own insecurity. And you're relying on my faith in you to help you pass that block. So, mm -hmm. yes, I have faith you can do the job. I don't have evidence of it. We'll find out. But for the sake of propelling you down the path that we both want you to go, I'm going to invest heavily in the lip service, in the useful fiction that I have faith in mm -hmm. your capabilities. Mm. Uh, it's amazing how honest it can be to tell people that you're going to lie to them. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to make of that except to say that it's been my stock in trade for as long as I've been a professional teacher. It's interesting because I think by telling people you're going to lie to them, you are instilling trust. Isn't that the, the case? Yeah, that's, like, that's, that's, the? Exact, that's exactly <laughs> it. And a corollary to that is I'm, I'm never afraid to fail in front of a class. And sometimes mm. I go out of my way to fail because mm. the, the, the unspoken assumption is, and you'll see this in stand-up comics as well. You've seen stand-up comics who get up on stage and they're bombing and they know they're bombing, but they won't admit they're bombing. You know, mm. you know the kind of moment I'm yes. talking about? Totally. And when that when that happens, it creates, as I like to put it, creates a rift in the fabric of space because the comic knows she's bombing. The audience knows she's bombing, but the truth is not being told. And because the truth is not being told, the audience becomes very tense and very nervous. How long will this comic stay in denial of this obvious truth that's causing so much tension between us and among us? Well, it hmm. turns out the minute that comic says, I'm bombing and I know I'm bombing, she wins back all the audience's loyalty. Because they yeah. know that exact feeling. They know what it's mm -hmm. like to bomb and not admit that you're bombing. And, yeah. and to see somebody do that, to see somebody own their failure in real time, it, it's liberating to the individual and it builds tremendous bonds of loyalty between the individual and, and the group. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm going to go political for oh, just geez. a minute because this is fascinating <laughs> to me. So, you know... This works in comedy, and I think it works in writing, but it doesn't work in everything. Like, think about 
politics. If we have a leader who's just doing a terrible job and they admit that they're doing a terrible job, people lose faith in them. They want their leaders to pretend like they've got it under control, they know what they're doing, and they're making good decisions, regardless of how obvious it is that they're not. Why is that? Why doesn't I, it work in politics, too? I, 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 <laughs> or, or could it? And no one's tried it. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you. Let's okay. do a let's do a thought experiment. All right. Let's let's say that on um, just to take a week at random, the weekend before Memorial Day or the week before Memorial Day. Let's say that. Um, sorry, I've I've made a vow not to use his name. No, but just I, say POTUS. Just say POTUS. POTUS. Say POTUS. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah I was gonna say, don't go. Don't I, do it. Don't do it. I sometimes call him his orangeness or the orange monstrosity. I like that, uh, when, yeah. when I spell his name, and this is in my journal, and it's like all throughout my journal, it's T asterisk 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 P. That's, that's my <laughs> spelling. It's like it's like Orthodox Jews won't spell the name of God. Um, anyway, <laughs> suppose he had, <laughs> we could go a lot of places with that, but keep going. Suppose he had said, uh, "My steps up to this point have been wrong." And, and I need to course correct. I'm making the latest possible decision based on the best available information. I made a bunch of decisions before based on the level of information I had. Now I have new information and now it requires a course correction. That would not have lost him any of his hardcore supporters because he could fart in their face and they wouldn't walk away. Mm. But it might have gained him some uh, uh, ac- approval or approval. Um, anyway, authority from other people saying, yeah. well, if this nitwit can course correct, maybe there is some hope. Mm. We saw him trying to do that last week with his new and improved coronavirus um, <laughs> uh, briefings. This is, this is the serious, sober-minded Donald Trump who actually recommends that you wear a mask. And it doesn't ring true because it's just not in his nature. He's, right. he's, he's devious, but he's not empathetic. And because he's only devious and not empathetic, his strategies are flawed. He would be a much more dangerous leader if he actually had a way to relate to those who love him and hate him. And he doesn't have that. Hmm. Hmm. So, so the answer is you do have to... As as anyone who's a leader, you have to admit when you're wrong. But I find this in business, too. Like, if we have clients and we tell them we're wrong, it's almost like you feel a shift in power. Like, now that you've admitted you're wrong, maybe you're doing other things wrong, too. Um, I, I, again, I'm just I, going I, into I, a I, <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep arguing until I get tired of arguing. Uh, <laughs> my, my experience of that is not the case. My experience is... When I've messed up and I own it, I do mm-hmm. less damage than when I messed up and I don't own it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's true of relationships, business relationships, personal relationships. First you lie. This is sitcom 101. First you lie. First you make the mistake <laughs> and then you lie about it. And and the whole arc of a <laughs> sitcom story yeah, is yeah. character makes a mistake, lies and denies, lies and denies, lies and denies, finally comes clean, and once he comes clean, everything's okay. But without that long period of lying and denying, 
there's no story. There's no conflict. There's no tension. Mm. Um, I, I, and, and if I, only I, we I would pay ten- attention and learn from our, our sitcoms of the 80s and 90s. <laughs> well, there's sitcoms. <laughs> I, I, I socialized myself heavily in my youth by watching sitcoms. I know a lot about how people should behave by watching mm-hmm. sitcoms. I don't know if your memory extends all the way back to Leave it to Beaver, but there was their friend, Eddie Haskell, who was such a suck up to the parents. Right, you know, right. the, he was he was two faced. He was one person to the parents and another person to the kids. It didn't take a genius to figure out that that guy was not likable and was not getting good outcomes. Mm-hmm. His his mm-hmm. methodology <laughs> was flawed. You could just see it. And and if you're six years old and watching Leave It to Beaver, you're absorbing that completely. Right. So you we can go me. even further back. Do you remember <laughs> highlights for children and Goofus and Gallant? No, now, that's all you. That's, I didn't even yeah. see that. That's all me, all me. Highlights for, <laughs> Highlights for Children was a doctor's office magazine when I was a kid. And I was a kid in oh, the 60s. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I, well, I remember it. It was in the doctor's and, office. And most and, of the dental and, offices. And they just, they just modeled social behavior. Yeah. You know, Goofus breaks the vase and then blames it on the dog. Gallant breaks the vase and takes responsibility. Hmm. It's right there in their names. Goofus and Gallant. Which one do you want to be? Right. Right. And that's the heart of storytelling. Huh? Storytelling is, is instruction and social modeling. The, the reason that we tell stories is to help those of our society, of our tribe, uh, um, manage their own lives and their interpersonal relationships better. That's the point of storytelling. That's, what, right. that's the job of storytelling in society. Hence the birth um, of Propaganda. I, well you can call it propaganda it's sort of it's a powerful force that can only be used for good or for evil right Uh, just it just depends on how it's used you do that well by the way say it again thank you it's a powerful force that can only be used for good or for evil Right. Which side uh, do you want to be on? <laughs> which side do you want to be on? It's that's a, a pull quote from uh, God. This is I'm showing my age. Does the the name Fire Sign Theater ring any bells to you too? Yeah, not at all. Huh? There was a seminal <laughs> no, comedy comedy group in the 1960s and 70s, the Fire Sign Theater. Mostly in the 70s, they were as big in my world as Monty Python. And uh, and for fans of humor and students of humor, those are some real interesting artifacts that are worth exploring. A lot of their material doesn't work so well now because it, it was rooted in time and place. But the uh, anyway, that line came from them, and I never like to use a line that I knowingly stole without acknowledging that I stole it. So that comes from them. But there was also a time in my life, and this is a point that might resonate, I could walk into a room. You're talking about about being in rooms and feeling uncomfortable and awkward. I could mm-hmm. walk into a room and find an excuse to drop a Firesign Theater quote just to see if anybody would respond with the next line. And if anybody mm. did, I knew instantly, there's my new best friend. There's my people. Yeah. There's my people. Exactly. And people do this all the time, whether it's Beyonce or, or um, Monty Python or Jim Gaffigan or whoever, you yeah. you look for people who share your cultural touchstones and you know for sure that even if you have nothing else in common, you've got those cultural touchstones in common and that's a starting point. Totally. Yeah. Sort of a litmus test for do I want to spend exactly. the rest of the evening talking exactly. to you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we've a, done a that. Hypno- a, a hypnos test, if I may. Fishing with John. So John Lurie put together a very short series of fishing 
I guess you'd call him a, t- a TV show, but it was just so, so not a fishing show. No, not at all. But didn't make fun of it. They actually fished, but it was definitely more of a mock you fishing, mock fishing show. But it was called Fishing with John. So when Chad and I would meet people, we'd be like, so have you ever heard with Fishing with John? And if they said yes, we knew. Okay, you're, you're in. You're our peeps. Have you <laughs> heard of Fishing with John, John? No? I have. Yes, I just did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> just about how about how about the uh, the eighties eighties jazz band the lounge lizards mm. I know of the lounge no. lizards but John no. Lurie was the was he, he the, was the the saxophone player and uh but this this t v show had like him and Tom Waits and him and Dennis Hopper Dennis Hopper and uh, just like william defoe just it's really fishing good. with these people just and, being funny, <laughs> yeah, you should. I, I highly recommend it. It's right. the thing about it is if you're watching it, you're going to think to yourself, "This is the weirdest fishing show I've ever seen" because it's I've super underrated. But then if you pay attention to the things they say, you realize this is just ridiculous. It's just funny these, because it's these so... idiots know nothing about fishing. Exactly. <laughs> Tom Waits, for example, is brilliant. I love him. But let's get back to you. And in fact, let's get back to teleplays. Um, you've written episodes for Married with Children, The New Gidget. Head of the class, speaking of um, awesome sitcoms that helped us decide how it would be human, The Flash, Out of the Blue, and The Sentinel, just to name a few. <clears throat> I'm curious how that works. When you're brought on to do an episode, do they give you free reign, or is there like a template or a story arc that you have to follow? Well, you, you have opened a large and painful can of worms. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Oh. That's okay. It's it's God. it's useful to know. <laughs> now, y- you need to understand that this all took place in a different reality uh, and a different modality. When I was coming up in sitcom, uh, it was still a, a, a small community, and you could make inroads just by getting on the phone and calling people. I think it's mm. a lot. I think it's a lot tougher now. There are a lot of more opportunities now, but by and large, things are less good for Hollywood writers than they were when I was coming up. But I mm. did learn a lot of hard lessons along the way. Uh, the first script I wrote, they changed a couple of lines. They didn't have very much time. They had to just shoot it almost as fast as I wrote it, and they changed a couple of lines. And I, I complained about it. I said, "You, you, you changed these jokes." And the executive producer said, "Trust me when I tell you, no script you ever write will be changed less than this one. This is a unique circumstance. Mostly, these things get worked to death." And mm. uh, he was right. And by the time I worked for Married with Children, I understood that, that in my role as a freelance writer, I was really kind of like a wildly overpaid stenographer because I went in and I pitched and they bought one of my ideas to develop. And then I did some sort of development work on it. And then they brought me in for a story meeting where they basically threw out the story that I had brought and created a whole new story in the room while I took notes and recorded the conversation. And it became clear to me that the story choices that were valid were the ones that were made by people who weren't named John Vorhouse. And the story Mm. choices that were not valid were the ones that I thought were good ideas. And so I executed on that story and I executed on that script. And ultimately, I think maybe two or three of the actual jokes that I wrote 
got into the script. And friends asked me when it went on the air, did you write that joke? And it became my standard answer. Did you laugh? If you laughed, I wrote it. (laughs) If you didn't laugh, the bastards changed it. And there was nothing I could do. I had a much better joke. Uh, Mm. Television is a a very collaborative medium. and, And the reasonable expectation is that everything you write will be changed by somebody. Sometimes those people making changes are very smart and well-intentioned. And sometimes those people are, uh, can I use the word fuckwits? Um, Cause that's what <laughs> you they can. are. Yes, you can. <laughs> that's what, that's what they are. I, I remember being on the Sentinel and I wrote a story outline and the network notes were, were just gibberish. And I asked my boss, who's still a good friend of mine. I, I said, doesn't anybody at the network know how to read a story outline? And he said, you think they got their jobs by being good at story. They didn't get their <laughs> wow. jobs by being good at story. They got their jobs by being good at network bureaucracy. Hmm. And it's a very cynical uh, point of view. But for success in collaborative creativity like television, especially in places where Um, commercial needs and artistic needs intersect and overlap and we can put advertising copywriting in advertising creativity in general in that bucket it's pretty clear that sometimes people are going to make decisions for good reasons and sometimes they're going to make decisions for bad reasons and unless you're the ultimate decision maker there's not a lot you can do about that that's kind of why you see my hollywood credits tapering off in the early and mid 90s and stopping altogether because I discovered that it was much more satisfying to me to be teaching and training writers in other countries where they didn't know as much as I did and they didn't push back against me and I could be the one to make the decisions and make the calls. And and what I brought to that was a determination to be a better colleague and leader and mentor to the people I worked with than the people who worked with and at and upon me had been to me. Mm. Did yeah. that answer your question? That's Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it was certainly it's, a lot you know, of words. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Like I wanted to be this romantic vision of, you know, writing teleplays and, you know, being involved with the actors, but the, you know, clearly uh, it's a romantic vision. But, you know, speaking of educating, you do a lot of educating. In in fact, I'd like to give a little plug. You taught a writing workshop at the San Diego Writers Festival on July 11th, which for our listeners out there, you can watch John's class at sandiegowritersfestival.com. Go to day two of our summer festival days programming. Um, And all of the summer programming is available to watch on the website. Just a quick little plug there. But back to you, John, I understand you teach classes in Russia. I want to know what's that what that's like. And I want to know are you actually a spy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I for sure am not a spy. I, I actually spent <laughs> I actually spent two winters in Moscow running the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children, and mm. uh, and for winter in Moscow, may I just say, do you know the expression winter wonderland? It's like mm. that, but without the wonderland part. And, the wonder uh, part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I wonder why I'm here and wonder if they're going to let me go. Uh, oh. I I've traveled I've traveled and taught all over the world and I will tell you that Russia was the single most challenging and problematic place I ever taught. And mm. and even though I was there for a long long time and did a lot of what I consider to be good work, ultimately the the experience was frustrating and not entirely successful in my mind for a reason mm. that 
didn't come clear to me until I reflected upon it. And it's this. Everywhere I go in the world to treat, teach and train writers and lead writing staffs, part of my secret sauce, part of my mojo is getting people to fall in love with me because they're writers that are they're not getting paid nearly what they deserve, especially in emerging markets. And they need added benefit if they're going to be the enthusiastic and hardworking collaborators, collaborators that I want them to be. So by design and by strategy, I try to get them emotionally committed to me so that they can follow me and feel good about working so hard to get the results that they're getting. And I try and give them, you know, other reasons why it's beneficial to them in terms of their learning curve and whatnot. But the, the main trick is get them to follow me by falling in love with me and then they'll go where I need them to go. In Russia, that trick absolutely didn't work. And I didn't realize why it didn't work until after the fact. The people that I was working with had grown up in a Cold War, Cold War world where the United States was the enemy. Mm-hmm. So getting them to fall in love with me was to getting trying to get them to fall in love with an American, which was just problematic on the face. It didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen. Well, also, plus you told I, them you were going to lie to them. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> they expect and they're that. Like, Wait they, a minute. <laughs> you know what? You know what? <laughs> He's I think admitting they, it. <laughs> I, I think they were so used to lies that even my telling them that I was going to lie to them, they thought that was a lie. Some, <laughs> somehow. I don't know. Uh, they also they also emerged to me. The writers I worked with emerged to me as a the most uh, f- frustrating blend of passive aggressive and aggressive passive behavior that I'd ever mm. seen. There's and this is something that I, I've seen working throughout the Eastern Bloc in places where there was recent memory of totalitarianism. There's damage. The the yeah, the people yeah, who sure. grew up in that system emerged into adulthood like victims of abuse. And it really changed the way they thought about themselves and the way they interacted with the world. And it was a hard hurdle for me to overcome because I I didn't understand that intuitively. I didn't have that empathetic sense of I'm not worthy. And mm-hmm. And once I got that, I, uh, I led much more effectively. But it was a challenge. I, 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 was, I had trouble seeing past my own assumptions for a long time working in that sure. part of the world. Sure. Um, I, I look forward to the day when I can actually travel in the world again, because there are a lot of places mm-hmm. I haven't been to that I yet want to teach. But Russia is not one of them. Hmm. What are some it, of the storylines for for married with children in Russia? Yeah, because I got to imagine there's like vast differences. Yeah, and and that is uh, instructive as well. For context, uh, I was working for Sony. Sony created or owned Married with Children. They sold the format rights to Russia, and Russia produced 13 seasons of Married with Children in about three and a half years because they Ooh. were doing them. They were producing. Three episodes every two weeks and airing them four times a week. So they were just burning through this material and they had burned through it all and then set out to create new episodes. And that's when I came in, not to adapt existing episodes, but to break stories for new episodes using the characters that they had come to understand. One stands out in my mind as an example of a typically Russian story that really wouldn't work anywhere else. Uh, the the um, 
the story centers on something called Special Forces Day, which is a day when Russia celebrates their paratroopers and other uh, special military forces, commandos, one might say. And the way they celebrate is by dressing up in military uniforms, getting drunk, and beating up gay people. What? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. And, and that's the story they pitched, was that, that <laughs> one of the members of the family is, is accused of being gay and is beaten up a lot. And they just thought it was hilariously funny. They, they were not at all transgressive. They weren't trying to create a more positive view of homosexual members of society. They were deliberately and aggressively and violently reinforcing the stereotypes. And I had a lot of trouble with that. And they had a lot of trouble with me saying that they were telling the story the wrong way. Hmm. And that... Uh, and a corollary to that, it's hard as a Jewish person to listen to somebody tells anti-Semitic jokes to your face, knowing sure. that you're Jewish. And I got some of that. But I'm sympathetic to the plight of the Russian citizen because uh, I asked a friend of mine there, I said, what do you think of the chances for democracy in this country? And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, in 800 years, we haven't had five minutes of democracy. And in a lot of how we look at people in Russia and the Russian government is based on our assumptions of democracy and how democracy works and what democracy is. And our assumptions just don't travel. I would even go so far as to say the American experience of democracy is unique among democracies because mm -hmm. it is so rooted in tradition and has an almost religious quality to it. Like we, our democracy is a matter of faith to us, as we know, because our faith is currently being so tested. But through other eyes in other parts of the world, democracy isn't a faith. It's just a political system, no different from any other political system you might think about. And that's where we have trouble making a, a cognitive leap or a leap of understanding in thinking about how other countries look at democracy, because we imagine that they look at it the way they look at it. And, and they look at it the way we look at it, which is the right way to look at it. And it's not that way mm -hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is the deepest, heaviest, saddest oh. interview. <laughs> next, My work next, here is up done. Next, <laughs> the, <laughs> up next, job. the evils of capitalism. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I'm going to totally change the subject, if you don't mind. You are an avid, I believe you still are, ultimate Frisbee player. And I think you even blew out your rotator cuff playing the sport. I, I'd like to quote you on your feelings towards sports, if you don't mind. Sure. As a kid, this is this is John Vorhaus speaking, quote, as a kid, I never felt at home in any sport, especially the hitting, kicking and falling down ones. I did love baseball, but I couldn't run, hit, field, throw or catch. And I was afraid of the ball, unquote. So my question, John, is what brought you to Ultimate Frisbee? Wow. Let me headline it by saying <laughs> Ultimate Saved My Life. And anybody okay. who needs their life saving, get, look forward to playing ultimate when and if we ever can again. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, I was a I was a junior in college and not athletic at all because short, small, fat, just didn't really cut it in all the sports that I might want to play. But ultimate, which is a field sport involving a flying disc, commonly known as a frisbee. 
uh, is non-contact, non-collision. You can't hit anybody. It's against the rules. In fact, if you do hit them, you have to call on call a foul on yourself, which is charming. The sport <laughs> that was, is charming. <laughs> the, the, the sport was shot through with a real counterculture feel to it. The 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 sense that we had a secret that other people didn't know. But the main mm. thing was that. For someone who'd always hated physical activity, it was just so compelling to play this game that I forgot how much I was suffering while I was running. As a friend of mine put it out, I'll never forget this, this, this quote. He says, the first time I caught a disc in the end zone, I could hear the door slamming shut behind me. Wow. And, and, that, and that's, it's a classic experience of Ultimate. For Ultimate players, if you ask them, what's your experience of the sport? They'll say, within the first five minutes, I knew I'd play for the rest of my life. And uh, and and it may or may not have had something to do with the fact that they and by they I mean we were all terribly stoned at the time, or not <laughs> that had ter- nothing to not do ter- with it. <laughs> not terribly, perhaps <laughs> profoundly would be a better word for it. It was a counterculture culture sport. In fact, I just had this conversation with a friend yesterday. We were um, tossing a disc one on one because that's the best we can do right now. And he said that he was drawn to uh, frisbee because. Uh, it was filled with pot smokers and he'd come from rugby and they um, uh, they didn't smoke pot on the sidelines in rugby, but they did in ultimate. He said that that's what drew me to the community. And my response to that was, I didn't think of it in those terms. I just thought, oh, they smoke pot here, too. <laughs> <laughs> like everywhere else I've been going in my life at that time. Um, a wonderful community of smart, intuitive, empathetic, funny energetic, right-thinking, just wonderful spiritual people, higher minds from top to bottom in the sport, Uh, a physical experience that takes you so completely out of your head that you don't feel bad about running, which is huge, Mm. and Mm -hmm. and kind of a calling card. No matter where you go in the world, if you play ultimate, you can make friends. Mm, And other sports have that quality, of course, too. But I don't know, for me, it was just, it, it, it was a sport that fit my mind and body. And if you had told me when I was 20 that it would cost me everything it's cost me in terms of career opportunity and, um, and physical uh, ailments, including a blown out rotator cuff and an artificial hip and a few other bits and pieces, if you told me it would have cost me all of that, I would have said, I pay the price. I pay the price mm. gladly, happily. To play Ultimate Till I Die is my fondest dream. And my friends who know me know that I have a standing DNR order, do not resuscitate. If I stroke out or have a heart attack on the field, you just leave me there because I'm dying where I want to be. So, <laughs> oh. so that's, wow. that's, something to look, that's something to look forward to. And, and lest you think that sounds depressing, I want to tell you that that is profoundly liberating. If you that know, awesome. Yeah. If, if you know what makes your life rise and you know that that your life experience has been and is fulfilling, you can die easily. That's my feeling. That's, That's awesome. what I'm banking on. That's what I'm working toward. Well, it makes sense. I mean, here you are, you spend a lot of time in your head. You're a creative in so many different ways and a writer. So to find something that gets you out there, that endorphin rush and running down the field and that charge, I can see where that would just be an incredible high. And to be high while you're getting that high is uh, <laughs> That's a bonus. <laughs> found in and of itself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the line I like to use is, I've been playing Ultimate twice a week for 40 years, but I can quit anytime I want. 
Um, it's, <laughs> and I can tell you that it's not true because I haven't played Ultimate since March and God knows when we'll get to play again. And I really mm-hmm. do miss it. I, 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 I substitute I substitute with walking and walking is just boring. Just boring. Do you, do you sometimes you, feel you like do, resentful or angry about that you're, that you're walking? Like having to walk for exercise? Yeah. Does that piss you uh, but, off? Uh, uh, but my, my life experience teaches me that um, resentment is a state that I will say, stay in until I reach acceptance. And the longer I stay in resentment, the longer I'm unhappy. And the mm-hmm. quicker I can get to acceptance, the happier I'll be. So I try and take a shortcut to acceptance at every opportunity. And this is for reals. The things that make us suffer only make us suffer because we attach such value judgments to them. I'm not doing something I want to be doing. I'm doing something that I don't want to be doing. Life sucks. I hate the world. That mm. The minute you let go of that, it doesn't make the situation any less you know, challenging. But at least it makes your interaction with or your relationship to the situation much more palatable. So I try to get to acceptance as quickly as possible. And that's that that tool, that tool of acceptance. I can't think of anything that works better for everything than acceptance. You get a rejection mm-hmm. letter. Let's just think about that. Part of what keeps people from sending out manuscripts is the fear of getting a rejection letter. And the part of that fear is the fear of thinking about how bad they'll feel when they're reading that bad news. And there's no doubt that it's bad news. It feels bad. But how bad it feels and how much it feels bad, that's in our control. It's not outside of our control. So the more we minister to ourselves on that stuff, the easier mm-hmm. it is to deal with rejection. And the easier it is to deal with rejection, the more willing we are to take a chance and take some risks. So acceptance is the one thing that fixes everything, according to me. You wrote a book called How to Live a Good Life, if I'm, I, I may have that title wrong. But uh, How to Live Life. Like- how to, how, how to live to, life. How to live life. Now I get it. You you are full of advice and great ideas on how to look at life, how to live life, how to face rejection, how to set yourself up for success, as opposed to looking at everything as a negative, you spin it to the positive. Trust me, you're not the first person to claim that I am full of it, uh, <laughs> be that as it may. Um, that's my journey. <laughs> now, wait a I, minute here. <laughs> That's not what you said at all. Look, you're you're look, you're full of lots of words. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, let let's let's just contextualize it. A writer will ask, "What is my mission? What am I trying to achieve as a writer?" And the more thought one gives to that question, the easier a lot of the tasks of writing becomes, just because the path is clearer. For me. Uh, my mission, if I were to have a mission statement, my mission is to help other people's lives rise. And Mm -hmm. if I'm helping other people's lives rise, then I'm on mission. I'm on point. And the work that I'm doing is more satisfying to me because it conforms to my fundamental sense of self, my sense of this is what I should be doing with my life. This is my purpose, let's say. So Mm -hmm. if my purpose is to help writers then my strategy for achieving that purpose is to understand what goes on inside a writer's mind. 
and my tactics for achieving or executing that strategy are just to go inside my own mind and figure out what makes me tick and what makes me think the way that I think and then try and communicate those ideas. That's beneficial to me because I understand myself more deeply and profoundly. It's beneficial mm -hmm. to me because I work more effectively and it's beneficial to people around me, not just because my advice is sound, but because it comes from an authentic place. It comes yeah. from the desire not to... Uh, tell you what you're doing wrong or fix your life, but just access the tools and the strategies and the thought processes that I use to make my life work better. And mm -hmm. so it's, it, it is, I don't know if this joke is going to land because it works better if it's written, but I'll try it anyhow. It's like the high fong phone book. It's a win win situation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say it again. See, uh, it's like the Haiphong phone book. First of all, for you kids, Haiphong is a city in Vietnam, and it's a win-win situation, but you have to understand that, that Nguyen is spelled N-G-U-Y-N, which right. is a common Vietnamese surname. So Got it. That, that's, how, that's, how to, that's how to tell a joke that doesn't work. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I think there's a connection. <laughs> Say it again, yeah, no, but... Yeah. It's like the Haiphong like it. phone book, it's a win-win situation. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like having the last name Thompson in America. Listen. Exactly. But, but um, uh, to quote the comic toolbox, to quote myself in the comic toolbox, the difference between a class clown and a class nerd, the class clown tells jokes that everybody gets. The class nerd mm. tells jokes that only he gets. So and, true. So yeah. true. So here's an example from that book. How many solipsists does it take to change a light bulb? Who wants to know? See, that's hilarious if you know that a solipsist <laughs> is someone yeah. who denies the existence of everything outside his own experience, but it completely doesn't work as a joke if you've never heard the word solipsist before. And you end up only feeling stupid and then resentful of the person who told the joke. So I, right. I tend, not, tend right. not to use that one except for illustrative purposes. Right. Chad got this funny look on his face and shook his head, which you, you didn't get the benefit of, but I did. <laughs> uh, it's like those little kid jokes but for really smart people smart nerds. oh uh yes um <laughs> oh uh, uh, a polar bear asks a penguin do you have any soap and the penguin answers no soap radio what I, 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 don't, I don't even know what any of those words are. I don't, I, I don't know how that's to be construed as a joke. But when I was in fourth grade, it was hilarious. It would make us laugh for hours. Huh. I, I still don't know why it was funny. I think, I think it was just funny because it was so absurd and ma manifestly not funny that we thought we were playing a joke on people who expected jokes to be funny. Right. You know, maybe people just laughed and you laughed because they were laughing. But I have a joke that I remember from when I was little that I'm going to share with the world. I'm going to ask you a question, John. What were you eating under there? Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't even know what and, that means. In, in this day and age, I would say, what were you eating under my mask? Is that what you mean? But that's probably not what you mean. Let me ask Chad. Chad, what were you eating under there? Underwear. You were eating underwear? Oh, oh. I got it wrong. Oh. <laughs> you oh. just you ruined everything. <laughs> Where are you reading? Um, you just totally reminded me of that joke. We thought my it was grandfather hysterical. used to tell me a joke. My grandfather used to tell me a joke that slayed me every time. What goes ha 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 plop? 
a man laughing his mm. head off. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. As a kid, we're gonna have to remember that one and tell Rex. Rex no. is our nine-year-old kid who, uh, not, he's not our kid, but he's the nine-year-old in our life who tells us a lot of jokes. He's going to need that one. Yeah, he's a huge Jim Gaffigan fan. Uh, totally. <laughs> John, I'm a huge Jim Gaffigan. I am too. I'm sorry. Did I move ahead too fast? No, go ahead. Tell us more. Okay. You're also a poker player. In fact, you've written True. books on the subject. For example, Decide <laughs> to Play Drunk Poker. I really like that title. I'm going to say it again. Decide to play drunk poker, which was a follow-up to Decide to play great poker, which was published a month earlier. Uh, tell us more. Uh, Decide to play great poker is one of the all-time great poker books in the in poker literature, and I no ego here at all. I, I can say that because it was um, I, I co-authored it with world-class poker player and truly brilliant thinker Annie Duke the only person who routinely makes me feel like not the smartest person in the room. And uh, as I describe it, all of the brilliant concepts are hers and all the pretty words are mine, but it was a very effective <laughs> collaboration and it is an, an enduring book on how to think about poker. No sooner had we finished writing it than I thought I would like to write a spoof of it. So I wrote Decide to Play Drunk Poker, which is considerably less worthwhile as a poker book, <laughs> but it, much better bathroom it. reading because it's much more accessible. <laughs> Uh, but that was actually awesome. uh, that was actually illustrative as well. Uh, you remember when poker got hot in in the early two thousands? It it went from nowhere to everywhere in a matter of it seemed like months. Do you remember that? I, I, I maybe, maybe you don't remember it, but it was driven by two powerful engines. One was the the poker camera technology improved, so you could see the cards that the players actually held with their little hole cams which made mm -hmm. the game much more interesting to watch. Plus, internet poker was happening. So if you liked what you were seeing on TV, you could play right away wherever you were. In that sense, it was like poker porn because it made you want to do nothing so much as that thing right there, right away. So all of a sudden, poker became hugely popular. Now, I had been writing about poker in a little magazine for years and years, just as a fan, as a, as a hobbyist. And when poker got hot, I went to my agent and I said, you know, I think... Uh, in this market, I could probably sell a poker book. And he said, I'll never forget these words. He said, I don't think I can sell a poker book, but I'm pretty sure I can sell three. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, I know people who will buy a series. They won't buy one, but they will buy a series of three. Hmm. And I said, I don't have three books worth of poker in me. He said, I'll bet you do. He said, if we get the contract, you'll, you'll deliver the content. And he was absolutely right. And wow. the, the, the illustrative point was, you think as a writer that there are limitations to what you can accomplish, but you get up against a deadline and you get really committed to it. You'll be surprised at how much you can write and how fast and how many, many different ways you can think to reinvent the wheel if necessary. I ended up writing six killer poker books, six books in the, theory, in the series, Killer Poker, and used it as a springboard into my novel career writing because mm, it taught wow. it taught me how to write 60 or 70,000 words every 6 months for like 4 years. I was just mm. cranking them out and that's when I really became proficient at generating long form uh, prose cool. long form long form word vomit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 interestingly, those books, those six killer poker books, they were some of them were huge sellers, especially Killer Poker Online 2 sold just gazillion copies, but none of them sell a single copy today. 
because the the uh, internet poker got banned and poker the the poker pandemic passed and now people aren't as passionate about it anymore and there's really there's really just no market for poker books plus the game has changed so a lot of what i was writing about which spoke to poker in the early 20th century 21st century isn't really relevant anymore it's interesting, interesting. to look at it it hmm demonstrates that writing is disposable in a way that you might not find too comfortable if you think about it. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. And you happen to be right on top of it. So it was a, a timing thing for you as well. And, and willing to drop everything to do it. That's another thing. Mm. Uh, in my career, I've been a very uh, fond fan of following the main chance. When something presents itself to me that says, I demand your attention don't know if it's going to work out for you or not, but but follow me anyhow. I I, I came to listen to that voice, and it it allowed me the opportunity to reinvent myself over and over again, and to keep exploring my creativity, and to have opportunities for employment in different places and different fields in ways that I never would have if I had stayed so narrowly focused on especially television writing. But you need yeah. to understand, before I was a television writer, I was a singer-songwriter. And before yeah. I was a singer-songwriter, I was an advertising copywriter. And huh. since becoming a television writer, I've written poker and a bunch of other things. So my life is a history of passing through things with or without ever actually mastering them. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I, I think I found, and, and then teaching about it too, because that's the other thing I discovered really early on. If I wanted to know how to do something, my most effective strategy was to find someone to pay me to teach it, because then I had totally. to figure it out and, and really, totally. really got to know it. But also yeah. being, being a high-functioning schizophrenic, and I'm sorry, I'm using that term loosely, and I apologize if anyone is put off by it or offended, but I discovered that there were two things I had to do. I had to write and I had to teach. And if I wasn't doing both of them, I wasn't going to be happy. I was going to feel out mm. of balance. And so right. part of part of the structure of my life was just getting into a place where I understood that I was going to write for a while, then I was going to teach for a while, then I was going to write for a while, and then I was going to teach for a while, and that's the way it was going to be. So, mm. uh, well, that it, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we're coming up to the end of our hour, which brings me to, I think, the perfect transition to my next question. What are you working on right now? What's, what do you have in the works? I'm so glad you asked that. It's nothing to do with writing. It's oh, yeah. nothing to do with... Uh, it, as, as you mentioned, I lost my rotator cuff to Ultimate Frisbee. And when that happened, I was also experiencing a crisis of writing. I, I really wasn't enjoying what I was writing anymore. So I decided mm. that I would explore visual creativity for the first time, take up art. And because I'm a writer, I turned it into a book called A White Belt in Art. But four years on, I'm really down the rabbit hole of art. I have become a, an artist who can sell works which I hadn't really imagined. I had to tell myself not to think about that during the first ugly struggling days. You had but to lie have, to yourself. <laughs> I had to lie to myself, but I, I have just completed uh, what I call the 100 head project, 100 self-portraits in 100 days, uh, which I posted every day on Facebook as a fundraiser for Doctors Without Borders. And um, that has been so profoundly rewarding, a real tonic for the times, because it meant that I had a creative task I needed to attend to every single day from like the middle of April through the middle of July. And 
and it worked out so well that I'm now on head number 109 of 100. So I haven't quite figured out how to quit yet. Awesome. <laughs> I'm hoping I will. I'm hoping I will at some point. Uh, I'm working on a new book called The Book of Practice, which looks at creative practice and talks about strategies for doing it better. But it's a slow burn because it's also highly philosophical and I'm not quite up to some of the philosophical philosophical challenges that I've presented to myself in that book. Um, I'm doing limited uh, artistic commissions and I have a whole other career as an educational consultant. I help people get into top MBA programs, Harvard Business School, Stanford Graduate School of Business, Wharton, the places like that. And that occupies a, a fair amount of my time at a high multiple um, hourly rate. So uh, as, as is typical of me, I'm going off in all directions at once and continuing to look ahead to the unexpected. A friend of mine mm. once described my business model thus, and I have adopted it and, and, and stand behind it proudly. He said, you walk down the beach, pick up everything you find and turn it into a party hat. And, that's, <laughs> and, 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 and um, you know, as, as, a, as a modus vivendi, as a way of living, living one's life, I can't say that it's going to work for everybody. And you think it, it will it will not work for most people because they don't have the voracious appetite for the new that I have, and they don't have the absolute willingness to fail that I have. Mm, yeah, and that's big. So, I, nevertheless, I recommend it. It's a great way to live life. It, it, it brings newness and joy and constantly refreshing creativity. It, it, it really makes a life rise. Awesome. Awesome. Plus you get cool hats. And you get cool party hats. Win-win. Win. Or win-win cool. win if you're Win-win, win, yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, John Vorhaus, thank you so much for chatting with us today. This has been super fun and really inspirational. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm so glad you found it so. That, that makes me happy on a profound and profane level. Both of those. Awesome. Cool. Listeners, you too can learn how to be funny, to get started crafting your own humor, to learn how to write good, to see John's 100 Head Project Works, which is totally cool, by the way, and to learn more about John and buy his books. Please visit johnvorehouse.com. Also, be sure to follow him on Facebook at John Vorhaus. And I highly recommend that you check out the writing workshop he did for the San Diego Writers Festival. It's free and super inspiring. You can find that at sandiegowritersfestival.com, day two of our Summer Festival Days programming. This has been another episode of The Premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Visit us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps and we appreciate your support. Until next time, be safe, friends. Mm -hmm.